My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives in all the genres of Scripture and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week. We are here every week. And we desire to be here for you every week, giving you this material, explicating it out and sharing our thoughts and hopefully some wisdom with you each week. So ways you can support what we're doing is first follow our Instagram page. Uh, next, you can like our Facebook page and you can listen to this broadcast every week if you want and make sure that you comment underneath the social media channels that you are listening to and you can financially support what we do here at resonate through our website resonatelife.org under the give tab so you are joining us live on thursday night at 8 30 pacific standard time for this broadcast and this will be replayed as our sunday morning uh, broadcast at 10 a.m pacific standard time on sunday so every thursday night we come together live for this broadcast for a better understanding of the material that we're covering so we call this supposedly a deeper dive sometimes we skim on the surface but this is supposed to be a deeper dive into the subject matter so if you are following us online you will remember that we are in a series called atlas of the heart and today we are looking at the biblical view of emotions created when things are not what they seem the emotions created when things are not what they seem so i'm joined today with my two very esteemed colleagues sharia bodner and jacob flug two of my leaders at resonate good evening jacob and sharia again on this thursday wonderful wonderful night how are you hello doing okay good how are you good i am solo dad for 10 days my wife is in london as we speak so this is her 40th birthday present two years late because of COVID. So these tickets have been pushed and pushed and pushed, but she's actually in London tonight, which is actually the middle of the night for them, I guess. <clears throat> but um, she is in London. What time is it there? 4.30 a.m. So she's in London right now with her mother and one of her uh, best friends, uh, Bethany Flug, Jacob Flug's wife is also there so he is also solo dad so if you hear kids crying in the background well and our screen magically goes blank we have to go check on the children <laughs> anyway point. but here we are everybody uh lots of lots of people uh i can tell you that after a day of taking care of my children and trying to navigate my busy schedule along with their very busy schedule. I couldn't, can't imagine being 13 years old and five having the busy schedules that they do, but they definitely have busy schedules. Mm -hmm. um, I am very humbled and thankful for and appreciate and want to give honor to all those single parents out there. You deserve awards. So that's just my thoughts on that. Um, you definitely deserve rewards for what you what you do and what you accomplish and how much you can accomplish. So I appreciate that. And it's days like today that I'm reminded of that just skimming the surface because I know there's a lot of deeper, deeper emotions when it comes to being a single parent than I ever 
thought about <clears throat> thinking about really. So we honor you for that. All right. We're ready to get into these emotions. Any random random discussion about Neanderthals or anything. Oh. No, I just please. read this news article about the the mayor of Cornelius and that's super all, sad. Super sad. So I read random news articles and he was just found and the the wife is celebrating tonight um bittersweetness. Mm. I'm yeah. sure the great ass. Yeah, yeah. She has the emotion of I'm sure sadness and also relief that she found her husband disappeared two years ago he mm -hmm. had uh, early onset alzheimer's disease he was the mayor of cornelius oregon and he was found in the willamette river in his car upside down and uh windows still up bottom 40 yeah. 40 feet down into a mm -hmm. river 100 feet out from a from the boat dock but they just found him two years after he died so I'm sure that that is, um, gosh, a bittersweetness, maybe, that yeah. she's thankful, but also super sad that she lost her husband still um, in such a tragic way. So Yeah, he had sundowners, and so when the sun went down, he went very yeah. active. Mm. Yeah. Which he is an interesting uh, thing. It is an interesting thing. Alzheimer's or dementia is uh, is definitely a... Gosh, the people that I've talked to that have it and also our spouses and caretakers of those that have it. Um, it's just a different set of challenges to walk through somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia for a long term. So some sad parts and some I've heard some sweet parts, too, uh, that are interesting to think about that, you know, like they become 25 again and things like that in their hearts and minds. So. Those are interesting times for the people that have loved them long-term in their mm. lives. That's the only random news. Nothing space, uh, nothing with space, nothing with UFOs, nothing with found Neanderthal uh, peoples, nothing like that today. No new dinosaurs Sorry. to report. No, no. Although I did read about this cult that was. <laughs> it's in the book, though, right? It is in the book. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to cover it. Yeah. I thought that was the funniest story this week. We're going to talk about um, cults. We're going to talk about the church. We're going to talk about deconstruction tonight. We're going to talk about heavy, heavy emotions and what those heavy emotions can do when things aren't not what they seem in our lives, which in the last two years, I would say. There are lots and lots of things that do not seem what they uh, do. They do. They aren't what they seem. And maybe we had certain beliefs. Maybe we had certain thoughts. Maybe we believed in something that really wasn't real or true. Uh, we're going to cover those emotions that are caused by uh, the things aren't what they seem in our life. All right. Those emotions are number one is amusement. Number two is bitterness. Number three is nostalgia. Number four is something called cognitive dissonance and paradox, irony, and sarcasm. I always thought sarcasm was bad, and I just have been just crunching over that for the last week. So you're going to have to help me unpack that a little bit because according to Brene Brown, it possibly could have some good 
um, energy come from it. So it's, amusement, it's very, bitter, very, 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 very selective. Selective, yeah. Amusement, bittersweetness, nostalgia, cognitive dissonance, paradox, irony, and sarcasm. That's what we're going to cover. Coming up with a biblical view of those emotions. All right, Jake's going to take amusement, bittersweetness. Let's hit it. Cool. I think to, to start out a little bit, the, the the heaviness of tonight comes from conflict, and this is a very conflicting section where you have dual emotions or dual feelings happening at the same time. And so, amusement or bittersweetness, like we talked about earlier, that's like the best examples. That um, I probably should know his name. He's very close, but uh, his wife is happy that he's found that she can put that to rest. The search can be, can be ended, uh, but there's a sadness of loss. And so, yeah, that's the, it's the, the conflict. And so dissonance, the paradox, irony, even sarcasm is this push pull of emotional heartstrings that we have to reconcile and keep reconciling them. And so amusement is probably the, the least needed to have uh, a reconciliation over because it's a relaxed excitement. It's it appeals to your sense of humor. Uh, amusement means deriving pleasure from your work or duty, and it comes a very very old word, but it connotates like uh, or denotates. Sorry, it connotates playfulness or the incongruity, unsuspected and expectedness and surprise. And so that's an amusement when things are supposed to happen one way, but they don't happen that way. And so you get, you get amused from that or the, another word for it is serendipity. Like Raph Brown thinks that's what his name is. Yeah. Um, thanks Kelly. The, uh, you have is the act of surprise. And so in scripture, I think if we go to the passage, they're going to put it forward there, Rob, for me. It reads, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through town. A man there named Zacchaeus, a ruler among tax collectors, was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree so he could see Jesus, who was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to that spot and looked... <laughs> Sorry, just had to do that. Yeah. I'll, I also don't think you read on this one either, Rob. Zacchaeus came down and at once, I must stay in your home today. So Zacchaeus came down at once, sorry, happy, so I'm all distracted now, to welcome Jesus. Everyone who sa saw this grumbled saying, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. Jesus said to them, Today salvation has come to you as his household, because he too is the son of Abraham, the human one, came to seek and to save the lost. Um. Some reasons I why to, that I was trying to bring amusement. You I was did. To bring it was amusement. Good. Yes. <laughs> it was good surprise there. Uh, Playfulness. Yes. A, a, a few like reasons of that is a story of amusement 
is that story is supposed to stop you because Zacchaeus means pure or or sinless and the the thought of a tax collector of the day tax collector is that they were the the scum basically of the Jewish culture where they were stealing from Hebrew and Jewish people and giving to the Roman government and so they would be seen as the lowest of lows and Jesus actually had Matthew with him who was a tax collector and so that's also in there but Zacchaeus was a like the whole story is in hyperbole where he climbs a tree he's short I'm sure if I looked up sycamore and the and the uh, metaphor around a sycamore tree it would probably point this way as well but the lavishness of the sinner so Jesus didn't tell him to give half your possession away he said, I already do that, and if I cheat anybody, I, I give four times back. And so he was lavishing people, not just himself. And so the whole story is to bring out a chuckle at the religious elite. Hmm. Solid. Hmm. Good work, Jake. Thanks. Yeah. Any, uh, any thoughts on that one? <laughs> Just it is a funny story. It is a funny story. We even have little songs about that funny story. He was a wee little man. A wee little man. <laughs> well, I think that amusement, uh, just the emotion of amusement, if we could talk about the, the idea of amusement first, is <clears throat> I guess there's two directions that we can take when we find incongru incongruous, inc incongruity to subject matter or to life. So if there's something not lining up, some people have a really good ability to look at something that doesn't line up and find amusement in that. Uh, even when it's, yeah, they go with the flow. That's a good way to put it. Um, it brought, sometimes it brings excitement to people where when something doesn't line up, they get you know charged out of that to find even more um, inconsistencies and incongruity to the subject matter. So I think that that amusement can, that's where amusement has the danger of going toxic, where we find uh, incongruity in someone. And then when we find amusement in someone's incongruity, and then when we start to poke at that or make fun of that or find humor at somebody's expense, you're and that's what I've the seen. Person, yeah. Right, right. So that's where I've seen even like in the political realm where we make fun of uh, people um, that believe a certain way. And whatever party lines you fall on, it really doesn't matter just talking about the subject matter in general. <clears throat> where when we make fun of another person, we're not talking about the issues at hand or the incongruity. We're just objectifying people. And that's where, that's where then the meat of the material or the subject matters being spoken about or the the seriousness of the subject matter then is not taken seriously so when we make fun of people or you know call people names or finding congruity with you know what they're saying and just you know name call and say hypocrite and not really talk about issues because I, I could say this that there's a lot of smart people out there 
And they didn't get to the places that they have by making really dumb decisions. So they made smart decisions along the way. They, they were actually influential because they got people to believe in them and get them into the position that they're in. So let's say it's the CEO of your company or your boss or maybe a politician or even the president or whatever, whoever you want to talk about. Uh, they got into those positions uh, not just by accident. And so they got people to believe in who they are. So they have a hermeneutic. And they have a they have a way of thinking, and that hermeneutic sometimes goes way deep into what they were raised with, or how they were raised, or childhood stuff, or even like just the the nurture all along the way. They came up with a belief system or ideologue of of ideas along the way. So it's it's gets toxic when we just start making fun of people in their incongruity, because even if they're incongruent they're not consistent. Um, they got there somehow. And when I point the finger at somebody that's inconsistent, I probably need to look at my own inconsistencies first and say, am I consistent in this argument? If I got up on stage and debated such things, would I be consistent? I don't know. Maybe mm -hmm. not. Yeah. The, uh, I believe it was Aristotle, but I'm not quite sure uh talks about the two philosophers that all philosophy stems from and it's one philosopher got in the morning up in the morning looked outside and laughed and the other philosopher got up in the morning looked outside and cried i think amusement is is part of the laughing side yeah so in all seriousness, when you look at like the, the idea of this passage of scripture mm -hmm. and you see that this is actually a slam on the religious authority and a call out, it's actually a very serious passage. Um, and what I find interesting is it's not just you know, taking light, a serious subject, it's actually using more irony. And I guess the idea of careful amusement to bring a truth to the table. Yeah. We don't do that today with, with serious subjects. We, we just say things and we think they're funny and then we try to get away with them. And then we say more things to cover up our insecurity because the thing before what we said wasn't really funny. And then we say it over and over and over again, and it still isn't funny. So yeah. I think though that like comedy in itself is a form of, of truth telling mm -hmm. that we can laugh about really hard subjects, process through them and get to their side. And so, uh, gosh, in Ricky Gervais, uh, humanity, I think it's humanity, right? Mm -hmm. Is that what it's yeah. called? Yeah. Um, talks about how a joke isn't targeted at a person; it's targeted at a subject. Or a and whether that you said. Yeah. stereotypes, it's all stereotypes. And so, although that's a very um, exaggerated example, how we how we process 
big things, big ideas through amusement and emotion and comedy, it might be helpful. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And then you and I have had this discussion before, so this is not new to us. I, I, I struggle with that. Yeah. Because I think that making fun, of, like using comedy to work through subject matter is a careful, careful um, line to cross. And comedy has changed. Like comedy used to be, back in the day, comedy Nostalgia. used to be. The nostalgia coming used up. to be, yeah, used to be like t telling jokes and making people laugh. And it was slapstick, <laughs> like there was slapstick type comedy, yeah. which is a certain form of comedy. The comedy that I see now, that it has like, it's agenda driven. And there's yeah. definitely a message <clears throat> that they're trying to get across. So it's, it's not comedy, it's preaching. And it, it should be preaching, not comedy. And they're using a platform of comedy to preach. So I struggle with that. I struggle with uh, making fun of people from the stage. I struggle with making fun of, like, like they, like there's comedians that have no qualms of making fun of the Holocaust right now. And I'm just like, that, that has never been okay. Like if I got up on stage on a Sunday morning and made fun of the Holocaust, I wouldn't have a job tomorrow. So, or the next day. So I think that I think that that's a line and maybe somebody can help me, you know, correct me. But I think making fun of like like certain subject matter or people um, tearing apart people. Look what just happened. to It'll get you punched in the face. So, so I I don't know. I just struggle with that idea. Yeah, it's not it's not a it's yeah. not amusement to me, I guess. I wonder if some of it too has to do with um, whether the subject is is one of power or empowerment. Um, yeah, I'm a little more okay with making fun of people in power than of those who do not have any. Sure. Because the, I think uh, that Ricky, and Ricky Gervais, Ricky Gervais makes fun of people not in power. Yeah. So you have like we'll get that in back into when we go to sarcasm, but it could also the the tinge may come from they don't have the relational clout to yeah speak into people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just not a funny person, so maybe I'm just jealous. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I'm just mad that people can make fun of everybody and joke around and get away with it. And I just, <laughs> I'm not funny like that. I want to be funny. You're a good storyteller. There, there's a thing, Shreya, but they're not funny. <laughs> there's, a, there's a guy I know that I wish he would stop trying. But he has communicated very clearly that he wants to be the funniest person in the room. And he has said things like this, that that's a goal. To, and he's not funny. When, when you sit there. When did I say that? No. Jake. No, this is a different person. This is another person that said the same thing you did to me, Jake. No. <laughs> no, he said that he wanted to be the funniest person in the room. And he's just not funny. So... 
Somebody like that, that could create some amusement. <laughs> well, There's it some creates irony there. Aw awkwardness in the room. Yeah. It's like, this is awkward. <laughs> anyway, I struggle with amusement because I'm not funny. So let's go to bittersweetness. Bittersweet. <laughs> <laughs> Bittersweet definitely is one that, and I think I can move pretty quick through this one um, so we can get the other ones because we've spent a half hour on amusement. But the <laughs> the it's the it idea, it's funny, yeah. The idea of bittersweet is that it is a bitter and sweet and so the best biblical story that I have is of this is in Ruth. Um, and it's it's a nuanced part. And so, Rob, if you throw it up for me, it is. Ruth 120, it reads, she replied to them, don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has made me very, very bitter. So Naomi means sweet, pleasant, like like a good tasting wine, and Marah is is bitter. And so uh, if you remember the Exodus story a while ago, I think we talked about the bitter pool. That's where Marah is, and the whole story of Ruth is going from sweet to bitter to sweet through loss and change and resurrection and rebirth through. Uh, Ruth marrying uh, that guy Boaz. Bo thank you, yeah, Boaz. And so there are many examples. And I think we all feel a bittersweetness, like we talked about um, the mayor a little bit ago. Um, changes in life are all bittersweet. I think you can all every change in life that we have, you can focus on things that are great, but also focus on the the pings or pains of the past as well that were good. And so uh, like graduating out of school or moving on the, that, that was totally sweet. <laughs> that was, that was totally pretty bittersweet sweet for me. I think, I think the, <laughs> the ending she also of, gives the example of watching your students graduate, yeah. watching your students graduating, graduating, um, there's some I don't really totally agree with that she put forward in her book. Uh, retiring is pretty bittersweet. Coming home from vacation is pretty bitter. I'm not sure about sweet, but the it's that it's that convolution or that conflict of emotion that's inside of you when you go through different life changes. I think bittersweet always has to have a change connected with it. Yeah, I think I think depends on that change though. I think the struggle that you're having maybe that I see that I have maybe the same is when you say a death of a loved one is bittersweet. Yeah. Well, it depends on how they died and mm -hmm. when they died and yeah, if they believed in Jesus their whole life and you know that they're in heaven and they just were a Sunday school teacher for 50 years and they died with a Bible in their hand singing praise, hallelujah, Jesus, you know, and they just sang them into heaven. Those are pretty easy funerals to do and they're bittersweet. But if they were, you know, murdered, I, I don't think that that's a. I think the sweetness it, comes from just uh, remembrance of the past. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then there's sweet moments in the past. I think that's what she she talks yeah. about how we bring forth those old memories to make the sweet part of the bitter. Right. Right. Even if they're murdered, we have different parts that that we can recall that we're good. Yeah. Okay. But I think I think divorce is a weird one for me yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. Um Although, like, getting out of an abusive or toxic relationship is a good thing. Or maybe that relationship that they just couldn't figure it out, but they decided not to be, you know, yeah. toxic to one another and remain mm-hmm. friends could be have a bittersweetness to it. Yeah. And in the, uh, the book, um, How to Change, uh, the author talks about the best way to change and to have a lasting change is a, is a locative change, so moving house moving a state moving even a country or relationship that is the main way to have a long lasting and uh a significant change in your life so that could also be the sweetness there but i feel like i like i have to dig pretty hard on some of these to Mm -hmm. to grasp them yeah as long as that move or that leaving the country is done and not in haste and (laughs) (laughs) was money in a suitcase leaving yeah yeah geographic you know (laughs) taking all of your addictions and abuse with you across the state you know you just there's no change that happens there okay bittersweet that was bittersweet even talking about that it's pretty bittersweet yeah goodness You know, I guess it just depends on how much neuroticism you have. Like, like if you have a high level of neuroticism in the big five personalities, if you're a higher level neuroticism, which means it, I know that that sounds bad. You're not necessarily neurotic. It's just a high level of neuroticism. So you think about like you're a contrarian, you think about contrarian ideas, the glass is half empty. In the big five personality, if you just look that up, Google big five personality, you'll see neuroticism, the list of the traits that are in there. If you have a high level of neuroticism, you're going to live on the bitter side versus the sweet side of bittersweet. Mm-hmm. So, so it's the job of just being a human being to not walk around being, you know, a, a, a angry person or yeah. a frustrated or hurt person. You got to get to that sweet side at some point mm-hmm. and to find it. Maybe there's exercises that we can do, journaling, writing, practical things that we can do to actually get yeah. to that sweet side and not live in bitterness. Has to do with gratefulness. Right. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, something is that in Ruth, although she changed her name, mm-hmm. Naomi's never called Marab besides by herself. Yeah. So everyone else can see the sweetness in there still. Good. Thank you. Well, let's talk about nostalgia. That's a big topic that I think needs to be covered. Uh, the verse that we have is Exodus 14, starting in verse 11. Nostalgia um, actually comes from a, a mashing of two words that we're going to go over here in a minute but exodus 14 11 through 12 says they said to moses weren't there enough graves in egypt that you took us away to die in the desert what have you done to us by bringing us out of egypt like this didn't we tell you 
the same thing in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us work for the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than die in the desert. That's probably our best example of nostalgia, although that has some abuse connections to it um, as well because they were abused in Egypt. So sometimes when we're abused, we go back to that abuse, which is a form of nostalgia, but also has abuse connotations. And you know, that's where, yeah, the mental um, illness comes into play and Stockholm syndrome and all of that comes into play. I think that nostalgia, the way that I want to take this topic, the direction I want to take this topic is a very important um, direction because nostalgia, nostalgia actually comes from uh, two Greek words. And the first Greek word is nostos, which is home or homecoming. home pain. So it's um, homesickness is what uh, they would call it. It actually was a diagnosed back in um, like the Kevin, early, I'll have a, I'll have a yeah. go back actually if you would right to uh, homecoming. Just yeah. Start, start this little section over again. What happened? We froze for a couple seconds there. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um. So it, the word nostalgia. Are we good in the tech? Are we good? Yeah, we're good. We just, you just froze okay. for a bit. That's it. Okay. So nostalgia comes from the Greek word uh, first, nostos, which is homecoming, and then alga, which is pain. So the pain in the homecoming. So there's pain in that homecoming. Um, it's homesickness. So homesickness actually was a diagnosed disease or a diagnosed syndrome that uh, uh, was called both back in the day. And so you were diagnosed with homesickness, which actually um, has been known to be fatal, where you can, it can lead to fatality. When you are homesick enough, there are certain other factors that follow that depression, neglect, some things not taking care of yourself, other diseases can come into play. Maybe you just, you know, it goes into a mental illness where you just stop showering, you stop, you know, taking care of yourself, you just stop, you know, eating, you, you do, you know, just non-typical, I guess, behaviors where, where you get yourself into a slow decline of physical ailment. And, and so it can uh, and has been reported that homesickness leads to or can lead and has led to fatality. And that's where I guess it started was with homesickness or with nostalgia. So that's what nostalgia means is wanting to go back to home. And it comes from that connotation or that idea that home is the good place, that home was the way we raised was the good place, the place that we wanted to go to, to feel safe, to feel comfortable. The good old days, that's when I played, that's when I had less responsibilities. That's when I had less accountability. You know? so, so there's a sequence of events though, that I think uh, with nostalgia that are 
very dangerous because the things that we seek after or the things that we want as our good place, there was less accountability, responsibility, and our power structures were left to be unhinged when we were in the good place. That's why it felt good. We could get away with stuff. We we weren't we could just sneak out and we didn't get in trouble. Um, things like that. So so nostalgia actually will go into something Jake's gonna explain um, to to us as replacement theory. But that that idea that we want to go back to the good place is nostalgia. I would say that this all started when or starts nostalgia kicks in hard when we are faced with uncertainty when things are uncertain in front of us where we have to make a decision then we want to go back to the good place when we're faced with well life is not the same and we have to navigate a new world we want to go back to the good place jesus never called us and i'll just you know like moving off of the exodus passage jesus never called us to uh, a past good place he called us to a future good place so so there was never a calling to a past mm. there was calling to a good in the present and a good in the future so if you think about the can jesus I, can mission, I butt in there for a moment yeah please when uh, in the story in the gospel story Jesus is her, his mom and brothers come and try to take him away because yeah. mm -hmm. they yep. believe that he's gone insane. Yeah. And they walk up and they said, your mom and your brothers are here. And Jesus responds, those that do the will of God are my family. And so, although I think Jesus has a place for family, um, family becomes a lot bigger than just our Mm -hmm. our blood it becomes our our mission to make family where we're at right Go so ahead. i think you know it's it's great i think that that good place that that home that uh we're being called to is not in the scriptures ever in the in the past and we start again we start jonesing for that good place of the past when we're faced with uncertainty. So the uncertainty could be like in the last two years, um, there's been people that like wanna go back three years ago. And I think about three years ago and I go, was it really that great three years ago? I mean, maybe on the surface it was, you know, seemingly good, but when you went paper thin deep, uh, it wasn't that good. And so life in general, probably in the last hundred years, you can't really say, oh, those were the good old days because we were in, we've been in conflict. We've been in war. We've been in, there's been, you know, disease. Somebody was talking to Jake today. He told me this story. I'll just say it for you that I, I wish that my children would be, would have been born in the eighties because the eighties were just so much better of a time to live. I grew up in the 80s, and the 80s gave us really bad music. The 80s gave us AIDS. The late 70s, early 80s gave us AIDS. I mean, there AIDS was like some... Epidemic. Pandemic. AIDS epidemic, yeah. 
I mean, there were some really tragic, tragic things in the 80s. I mean, there was hostages taken. There was war all over. Um, so you can't tell me that the 80s were this great time to live. Maybe, maybe we had, you know, a few more dollars in our pocket because gas was still 99 cents. I have no idea. But, but to say that the 80s were the good old days is really like a, not a really a, an intelligent thing to say. Oh, but the 70s. Oh, the 70s. 70s were the good old days. Man, Vietnam. Mm. I mean, come on. So, so I think about like, I think about like when we reflect back, what we're reflecting to is not the good old days. We're reflecting back to some time in our life that our responsibilities were less, our power was unhinged, we were held less accountable. Why? because we were younger, because we didn't have as many responsibilities. We didn't pay our own mortgages. We paid rent, maybe, if we didn't live with our parents. Um, you paid uh, you much know, less rent. Less rent, <laughs> yeah. So there so, are some parts of it that are pretty great. Oh yeah, sure, of course. But uh, you know, to want to go back to those days, I think that that's a form of nostalgia, that homesickness and wanting sick to go back to those. I think that we need to go a little more than a paper thin. So we're faced today with a lot of uncertainties. We're faced today with a lot of, of uncertain times ahead of us. Inflation on the rise, you know, gas prices. I just drove by a gas just, station. Five, just like the 70s. Yeah, just like five fifty nine a gallon. Um, those are pretty high prices. Um, you know, we we see interest rates on the rise again. The median house prices in Sherwood are off the chain expensive. I mean, I don't even think there's a median price for a house anymore. They don't even use those term that terminology here right now. They, the lowest price is like four hundred thousand. Insured now. It's, it's no. much more than that. Yeah. Four hundred thousand. I think I, I think. saw a house for four hundred thousand. It was a, just a, a knockdown job. They lowered the price to one hundred fifty thousand on the six hundred. So that that one's five hundred thousand, but it's a commercial lot. So, so, you know, there's still like there's still some. You know, Sherwood is like starting in the low nine hundreds. You know, it's like why 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 do we think that's cheap? I have no idea, but. Anyway, so so things are things are on uh, the rise, and it seems like that three years ago things were better. Um, I don't know if things are better, and I'm not sure that we can go back to a certain time in our current age and actually have them be better. It has to do with age time theory, where we go back in our age. And the time theory that we have that the 80s, the 90s, our responsibility loads and factors were much different uh, back then. But we have this replacement theory that I think that nostalgia actually can lead us to dangerous places. And so go ahead quickly, Jake, and just explain replacement theory really quick. Um, the idea of replacement theory is that... Uh, I think 
You, you haven't gotten into the white supremacy part of not yet. I was, going, I was going to, but go ahead. Uh, Here we so, go. <laughs> so nostalgia points back to what we thought was a better time, and so what we are seeing in the, in the media a lot right now is that this idea of replacement theory that um, the liberal agenda or the democratic agenda is to is to saturate the population with immigrants and people of color so that the the white person will become extinct in a matter of years based on birth rate especially in the united states um it's also it comes from france actually um so it's not does not originate here um it there was a author in in france that actually brought it up again and a few different times and so um it's not just the problem is not just here and then but we are just seeing that the replacement theory or the great replacements called uh being uh reverberated or enumerated all over media right now and so um like there's a certain media outlet that's being hit pretty hard with that at the moment uh, a previous politician that would speak that often how how immigrants coming in are like rapists and murderers and so that is the basis of of uh xenophobia or like fear of other people fear of people of of color and so the um buffalo new york shooting uh that person was was very involved in replacement theory um a lot and so they're believing that one of the main causes of of that shooting was the idea of replacement theory, which the nostalgia or the opposite of replacement and the, the, the motto is to secure a future that is safe and, and, and good for our white children. That's, I guess, how nostalgia ends up being toxic and culturally toxic and has to do with specifically white supremacy um here's a, here's kind of a, a narrative that i want to talk talk through this is what is spoken and then there's things that are not spoken so what is spoken is i wish things were the way they used to be in the good old days seemingly harmless seemingly that's something that lots of people have said there's songs written like that right but when it comes to white supremacy this is what's not said when people knew their places so that's what's not said in in a white supremacist attitude what's not spoken also is when there was no accountability for the way my behaviors affected other people so I think that's a general not spoken too. when we want to go back to the good old days. Maybe we're not, maybe we wouldn't be having a white supremacist, you know, like idea or thought pattern. But every time we want to go back to nostalgia, we also have when there was no accountability for my behavior, how it affected other people. So that is a common thing for, for lots of people. But in a white supremacy narrative, we see, Good old days, I want the good old days when people knew their places, when there was no accountability for the way my behaviors affected other people. 
And then what's not spoken when we ignored other people's pain, if it caused us discomfort and what's also not spoken when my authority was absolute and never challenged. So ultimately that is the narrative of nostalgia, how it's played out in white supremacy is when somebody of power or usurping power over another, that is how that plays out in a white supremacist mind and attitude and cultural uh, issue, cultural um, uh, makeup of white supremacy. So replacement theory, Jake, that's, I mean, there's a lot of white people that are afraid. Uh, that's what the whole like book white fragility is all about is we're fragile people because we have held positions of power. And when that is threatened, we're afraid that power is going to be taken away and we're not going to be in power anymore. Even if we don't even seemingly have like in our minds, much power. I just was listening to a speaker the other day that would say, everything I just said right there is a bunch of crap. That's what he said. Everything that I just said right there was a bunch of crap. You know, a middle-aged white male like myself saying that back to what I just said. And so he didn't believe in white supremacy. He didn't believe in racial uh, discrimination. He didn't believe in any of it. And he also didn't believe in white, or excuse me, replacement theory. So well, he, he believes in replacement theory. He just doesn't know what it is. Right, right. He believes he's that afraid. he is being replaced. Right. He's be yes. Excuse me. He believes that he's being replaced. Uh. But he doesn't believe he's a white supremacist. Correct. And so, like, yeah. uh, white like replacement theory is not grounded in in uh anti-racism is actually grounded in racism right and mm -hmm. so it's a it's a it's pretty like if you go deeper into it it's a pretty gross assessment of culture yes it is it is so nostalgia also has affected not only our culture but i think i think culture in a sense reflects a lot in the church in the church and the culture. So nostalgia has affected the church. And I've been thinking about this really all day today, how it's affected the church. I remember people saying the words, the good old days in the church and how we needed to go back to the good old days of the church. What, when like we were like, what are the good old days? Like the first when we didn't years. have drum sets. When we didn't have drum sets, or are we going way back, like when we were persecuted and murdered on the you know shores? Um, or I'm when not we sure. Were killing our own people because of different <laughs> I ideas. I just don't know, like what the the good the old crusades. Days, those are the good the, old days. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the good old days of the church were, but I, I think what they're talking about is like the 1950s, Apartheid? the 1960s of American, like so, middle middle class church. Yeah, the same good old days that we're talking about in politics. Right, right. It's the fifties. Right. So I think that I think that the good old days of the church. That, that's when we sang hymns. That's where everyone fell in line. That's where we, when 
Are you still active, Shrey? Yeah. Okay. Did we? Are we active? Kevin's lagging. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think uh I think that we have a an internet issue again. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. But let's just continue on. Am I lagging still? You're lagging, yeah. Right a little now. bit. But, but you're fine. Okay. All right. So let's just get try to get through the nostalgia piece. So the nostalgia piece um in the church I think has affected us because we are now unable to navigate uncertainty as the church. And that's where we get really, that's where we've gotten really anti-missional, I guess, as a church. Our mission is to be in the world and not of it. And being in the world means that we navigate uncertainty, we navigate new challenges, we navigate through new issues, new ideas, new thoughts, new invention, new creativity we we navigate through new and we are new creations in this new world and we're to navigate the new world and with our new creation so i think that the idea of nostalgia is such a strong emotional response to change and especially uncertainty that it's really this idea of nostalgia has held us back as a church tremendously it's it's like held our feet to the ground um in cement and it's been dangerous for the church it's it's really caused churches to close by yeah. just exponential numbers and I, f- I feel like church nostalgia with um with theology the we only hold on to the things that give us more control. And so uh, even though those may be very new theologies, like if we talk about rapture or the end times or um, inerrancy of scripture, those are all, all very like new in terms of theology. Theologies, those are all come out of either the 1600s, 1700s, or earlier um but the they give us complete control and they give us to be let us have the main voice on the end and so in that nostalgia uh, we're giving up the things of the past that we should have good nostalgia over so that we can have control of home yeah I would say that back in the day, the church thought that smoking was illegal, like evil, right? It was illegal for the church to part- people to participate in smoking, right? And then we kind of loosened the belt on smoking. And the church has always struggled with like, substances and addiction and what to do with mental illness and what to do with things that seem of the world we don't know what to do with and so we stop talking about it we just we just call it illegal for the church not illegal off limits limits. that is off limits for the church 
we don't talk about it. We don't engage with it. And it used to be dancing. You know, we couldn't playing dance because playing cards was an was an issue. Couldn't play poker night. Zippers on women in the front, especially. It had to be on the side. Couldn't be in the women's front. clothes. Yeah, women's clothes in general and Leggings. earrings and makeup and and all of that. Uh, women. Yes, women in general, um, and what the church has done with women. So, so we've we've struggled with and putting things off limits to the point that we haven't been able to navigate a world. We haven't even been in it, not of it. We haven't even been in it. So we don't. We don't. We didn't used to not know what to do with the smoker. You know, like, what do you do with the smoker? Right. That was back in the day. Well, they can smoke out back and then nobody wanted to go out back. Oh, you smoke. I mean, I knew an elder. He couldn't be an elder anymore because he smoked. And I, I said, well, you know, my dad smoked for a long time, so you know, I'm pretty used to it. Um, but but honestly. So then like drinking has been an issue with the church for a long time mm -hmm. and, and not knowing what to do with drinking, not knowing what to do with addiction, not knowing what to do with substances in general. Now we have legalized pot. So the church has not dealt or navigated addiction or substance use at all. So now we don't know what to do with the changing world with the legalization of pot. So, so, so take it farther. We haven't known what to do with, you know, any relationship besides married male and female. That's all we've been able to deal with. Kind every of. other, every other kind of, yeah, kind, kind of. of, yeah, not even, not even, not even hitting the mark on that at all. Okay. So let's put it this way. The church has never known what to do with relationships. Right. So we've made a declaration about marriage, but we haven't done a good job in navigating marriage. The church has never known what to do with divorced people. Mm -hmm. The church has never known what to do with uh, married twice people. The church has never known what to do with, well, if you were married four times, well, you know, not not know what to do with the fourth time marriage. We've never known what to do with single people. And we now, in this navigating world, in the last, what, however many decades now, we haven't known what to do with gay people, LBGTQ+. Now we don't know what to do with trans. We don't know what to do with people. So, so that's, my, that's my charge to the church when it comes to the idea of nostalgia, we have an ever-changing world around us and we need to get good at this being a new creation in a new world. And what do we do? How do we navigate uncertainty? And how do we navigate an ever-changing, facing dilemmas and new challenges and new thoughts and new creativity, new ideas that are being thrown our way and give a Jesus response and not go back 
to the 1950s or 60s or 1980s and say, oh, I wish that, you know, we were the church of the 1980s. That just makes no sense to me why that's even. So I think that the nostal this emotion of nostalgia has held the church back for so long. It's been very toxic to the church. And I think that it's just a yearning that we have that we didn't have to address these things. We didn't, it was a yearning. We didn't yearning have the responsibility. Cult culture was addressing it for us, so we never had to right. address it. Yeah. I mean, think about how culture... Uh, addressed gay people like back in the day it was illegal so yeah. we didn't have to we didn't the church didn't have to deal with it you know and I mean, a lot of that was driven it it a lot of that was by, the by the church but yeah. mm -hmm. uh, it was performed uh via government right right i mean at what point and i'm going to just throw this out here because this is the roe v wade uh abortion uh, a conversation and dilemma and conflict. The church has never, ever, I would say there's been moments, but the church has never been good at navigating and what to do with abandoned babies, pregnant moms out of wedlock. Like what, what has the church done? The church has paraded them on stages and kicked them out. That's what we've done. So, but, but the men can stay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So, so uh, the tragedy here is we are pro-life to a point, and that that's really upsetting um, to me because I have two adopted children, and my adopted children. Um, I'm very thankful that I had children through adoption, but it was one way that I was in my life felt called to address this issue of abandonment and, and moms who decided to give over their children to adoption, that I could be one of those people that could step forward and adopt children. I just felt called to do that. Not everybody does, um, but I think that the church needs to navigate and begin to navigate what to do with men and women, women who get pregnant and the men who impregnate, uh, impregnate them. I think we need to address that as the church and learn through love and care. I mean, honestly, are we going to provide services and care for women that are going to carry uh, babies to full term? Is the church going to step up and provide that care? Are we going to provide the health care and provide the house care, provide the money that it's going to take for her to take the time off of work? Are we, are we going to step up? Or to the plate not, not for just pregnancy though, for 18 years. Mm -hmm. Well, right. Yes. And that's yes. the hardship is that we, we are only pro Zygote. Sure. I wouldn't even say fetus. We're only pro zygote. We are not pro birth. We're not pro because we would have systems in place that helped 
mm. uh, healthcare costs and um we aren't pro birth because uh, we don't have systems set up to handle or help the people get to the hospital um mm -hmm. we're not pro baby because it ends and not, there's hardly any support at that point and then you have you create this system where okay now this person's going to be on welfare because you have said to this person that they can't make that decision which I don't know or don't think that anyone has ever really wanted an abortion in their life. That's not plan A, right? Well, so, I can't I can't speak to that because I'm a middle-aged white male. And yeah. you're now a middle-aged white male, Jake. So I'm a middle-aged white male. So, Sharia, you've had two middle-aged white males. Yeah, so please. That's the point, but I, I would agree. I don't think that's ever plan A. Yeah, I couldn't imagine that being plan A and maybe maybe for a selective percentage. You know, no, maybe I'm saying for plan a... a is to get to get pregnant in order to have a. Right. Oh, oh. Yeah, I don't That's what that's plan an... that's what plan yeah. A is for is what I'm no. saying. No. But I would I would probably debate Sharia, please help me with this with my language. I would debate that even when a woman gets pregnant maybe that getting an abortion there's only a fraction or maybe a, a smaller percentage that that is a woman's plan a that she's like probably not not knowing what to do and try to think through her options at least and i don't know i guess yeah, i can't I speak mean, to that the fewer options you have the fewer options you have right and I think the church needs to be an option. Like yeah. turning to the church and, you know, turning to our care. I, I just, I just am asking myself right now, where's the church? And being in Oregon, we have to ask that question of ourselves less, mm. which is unfortunate. Why is that? That we, that we can't be more proactive um we aren't going to lose our right to choose here oh i see yeah not soon well yeah it's gonna it would it would take a it i think an act of well i won't say act of god because i don't think god is in that one but uh it would uh act of congress <laughs> it would yeah you know, state yeah, congress. I don't know. yeah active state congress to completely flip-flop on everything but yeah. So when I think about this topic and I think about like the church being angry and upset and threatened and all these things, okay, what's a better response besides I wish that I wish that, you know, we could go back to the day when abortions were underground. Right. I wish that we could go back to the day when what i mean what what day do we want to go back to on this topic i think the day that we need to go to is the day forward mm -hmm. and that's the progression of life we need to follow the progression of life forward not not backwards so what is the third way what's the kingdom way in this because the church's way has not been the kingdom way society's way really is 
never the kingdom way. So what's the kingdom way in this? I think is needs to be answered and answered. That is a very heavy big topic. <laughs> very, <laughs> very. But I just wanted to drop it in there like a bombshell. It, uh, if you want to go big nostalgia, uh, it was released today that Bren Ben Franklin wrote a 17, like, 40s article on how to perform an at-home abortion. So if you want our founding father's advice on uh, on Christian ethics of that, I think. Wow. There's some irony there. <laughs> Which I don't think we're going to be able to get to irony tonight. No, but can we cover a little bit of cognizant cognitive dissonance of course yeah i got that one and i'm usually pretty brief okay go for it Sharia. um so i'm going to start with the definition um and then we'll look at the scripture um cognitive dissonance um is defined as a state of tension that occurs when we to hold two um beliefs or ideas or attitudes or opinions that are psychologically inconsistent with each other so for example, I believe that the Bible is the only text we need to know about history. And also I believe that there is no historical evidence that the Israelites were ever in Egypt. Yeah. What was your first statement? That the Bible is the only document we need to know anything about history. You don't believe that, Sharia? I don't, I don't believe okay. that. Um, but if we find ourselves holding these two beliefs and discover that we can't, um, something's got to give. And that feeling that we're feeling is, is cognitive dissonance when these two things don't work together. Um, so let's look at that scripture. <laughs> and then we'll talk a little bit about the, the feeling there. So this comes from Jeremiah six oh. fourteen. I don't know this if uh, Rob has yeah. that one. Yeah, he does. He does. does he yeah. Have mm -hmm. There it is. And it's talking about um, religious leaders in Jerusalem. Um, it says they treat the wound of my people as if it were nothing. All is well. All is well. They insist when in fact nothing is well. Um, so it's when you can see, um, the Babylonians besieging your city and you're still trying to comfort people saying, everything's fine. Everything's going to be okay. Um, so when we're faced with, uh, cognitive dissonance, we have two options. Um, we can either double down on what we have always believed and hold that belief even more tightly and stick our fingers in our ears and start yelling so that we don't have to hear anymore. Mm. Or we can follow the new information and see where it leads and let go of our previously held beliefs. Mm. That's hard to do. A lot of us opt to double down. Yeah. So let me pose something to you, Sharia. Okay. Do you believe that we go through cognitive dissonance at every election cycle of a new president? Oh, that's... Oof. 
I mean, I can give you my initial thoughts and then I'm going to marinate on it for 36 hours and I might arrive at a different conclusion. Um, are you, did, did Kevin create dissonance in you? <laughs> no, I'm just a marinator. I don't know what I think <laughs> until it sat in me for a while. Um, maybe. the last the last few the last couple have just felt so uncertain anyways that it was almost hard to know what to believe about <laughs> what was happening mm -hmm. yeah i i think it just brings out the dissonance that's already there yeah I definitely think we witnessed some this last election. I think with the rise of of polemic media, especially how hard it's going, and mm. QAnon, but also the the opposite of that. I'm not sure what the opposite of that is right now in my head. Um, but there's some cognitive dissonance there. When I was in yeah. high school, there was these student body elections, the SBA, uh, Student Body Association or whatever, that, uh, that they would elect a president for the senior class president. Mm -hmm. And that president would always run on a platform. And, you know, they had their little sites and they'd give their speeches and they go through the process, but it's some along the lines they made promises that were never even able to be kept. Soda pop machines in every hallway. I remember that one. It was the eighties. Are you sure that you didn't get them? No, no. I mean, it was <laughs> oh, wow. a school board, school board decision. So that, much for know, the good old days. So much for right? the good old days. Yeah. Yeah. We have cigarette, like cigarette machines were fine and we could smoke in the back in this little courtyard we could actually smoke but soda pop machines in the hallway were not uh they were not approved you could, you could smoke yeah we had a smoking <laughs> section in school it was it was in the back <clears throat> it's a little patio did you bump cigarettes back. off the teachers or what totally so <laughs> so <laughs> no the teachers would go out there and smoke too with the students yeah so no. so uh yeah, so there was always promises that couldn't be kept, right? Uh, I think that we've seen that in every election cycle. There's always promises yeah. that that maybe in a you know a midnight prayer, hope, and dream that it could be, you know, fulfilled, but it's it's you know impossible to fulfill some of these promises. So I think about like like how uh, you know. George W. No new taxes. You know that's what that's what he lost his two days later. Two days, yeah. Two 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 months he gets elected and you know then doesn't get reelected because of that lie. <clears throat> um, no new taxes. I think about Is it a like lie or just the Iraqi just had war. To... Or yeah, I don't know. It was something. There's some dissonance there. It was there. it was like an always a promise. Yeah, there's dissonant promise that. That is this going to happen? Is this going to actually occur? Um, 
I think about like the Iraqi and Afghanistan wars, how that was always a promise to get out of those wars and how long it took to get out of those mm -hmm. wars was just, it was always a promise. Um, hope and change. I'm not sure what hope and what change we actually got. We got it's much some. worse now. Yeah. Like what hope and change did we get? Um, I think about, I think about build a wall, you know, did we get a wall? I don't think we got a full wall. We got some, but it's, you know, blowing down and kind of a failed project. Uh, pipelines were promised. Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, what Guantanamo Bay was supposed to be, you know, shut down over and over and over again. So, I mean, there's just promises made and not kept. And so then when those promises are not fulfilled, you know, a couple of years into the election or then to, you know, office, I think that people enter into a form of cognitive dissonance. And it happens a lot with the party of the person. It's not the opposite party. They're not in cognitive dissonance. They, they think that the guy's a, or the gal's a quack job, you know, running for office the whole time, even in office. But it's the party of the person. So the Democratic Party of Biden is in cognitive dissonance or the Republican Party of Trump is in cognitive dissonance. Because things that were promised were not fulfilled. In terms of what we think about the president. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or what we think about the promises that were made. Right. Because we can still, all of us, experience cognitive dissonance about what is happening in our life as, as community and as a nation right. that isn't necessarily related to who's running it. Right. Totally. So think about, think about the Trump, Trump years the good old days of the Trump years where there was a lot of promises made, right? And things didn't happen quite the way that uh, they were supposed to, quite opposite probably of the way that they were supposed to, um, to the point that, that he wasn't reelected. Uh, and now people are doubling people down. Account. <laughs> mm. Uh that's that's said in sarcasm we never meant met, yeah yeah total yeah sarcasm. you can't joke like that jake and not have a full full <laughs> joke um and and we get to the other side now a couple years later and people are doubling down yeah like they believe in him more they want him more uh even though there were things that were definitely promises that that were never even able to be fulfilled so how could we you know, the promise of building a wall, um, how could we develop Space Force and not build a wall? That just doesn't make any sense to me. We can develop a whole new program, a whole new arm of the military, but we can't build a wall. I just, I, that just seems like cognitive dissonance to me. That's where I'm going with this. And the same, you can say that, and I'm not picking on him because I know we have some believers in, in Trumpy, but, uh, but, you know, you think about Biden, you think about all of the presidents that have been elected and you think about what they promised and what they fulfilled. People enter into cognitive dissonance when it's all happening because what they promised is not being fulfilled. Whoever it is, it could be anybody.
Democrat, Republican, or even a congressman that you believe in, congresswoman, whoever it is. Well, on that depressing note. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We All right. We didn't even get to the doomsday cult. <laughs> we didn't get to the doomsday cult, did we? Dang it. Well, one day. Well, let's quickly just paradox is actually the the belief you have two beliefs that actually don't necessarily contradict each other you just can't reconcile them together you can't figure out how to bring them together the best example that i can have of paradox in that in that two related components is the trinity and our belief in the trinity we live in paradox of the trinity um and that's all we have that's all we have time for it's 9 55 so we need to shut it down but hey this was an engaging conversation thanks for having it with me I appreciate both of you uh the places we go when things aren't what they seem lots of emotion there lots of emotion all right good night everybody thanks for joining us this evening have a good wonderful rest of your week <laughs>